Hi, this is Mark Wasserman. Welcome to the Skaboom podcast, which is the audio companion to my forthcoming book, Skaboom, an American Ska and Reggae Oral History, which will be published later this year. In this episode, I turn my ska gaze up to the Great White North. The intro music for this episode is ska music, courtesy of the villains. The villains, you ask? Never heard of them, you say? Well, chances are that if you didn't live in Canada in the early 80s, it's unlikely you've ever heard of the villains. One of the most challenging things about writing Skaboom was deciding which bands to feature in the book. And as I made some truly tough choices, I kept coming back to the villains. Ultimately, because the focus of the book is on the birth of American ska, I had to leave them out. But trust me, their music is great, and their story is truly cinematic in scope, and one worth writing about and documenting. They are most certainly one of the pioneers of North American ska, and I hope to do their fantastic story justice with this episode of the podcast. The period from 1978 to 1983 was a very fertile time for ska music on both sides of the pond. In the UK, the specials, Madness, The Selector, The Beat, and Bad Manners were all the rage, while here in the US, The Untouchables, The Uptones, Heavy Manners, and early incarnations of Bim Scala Bim and The Toasters were making waves. The Great White North had the villains. The Villains became one of the most popular bands in Canada in the 80s and made a huge impression on the Canadian media and public, becoming synonymous with ska. For those who never saw the band live or have never heard their music, they were a two-tone style musical circus that toured Canada nonstop. I compare them to the musical love child of madness and bad manners with a strong skinhead influence and style. The band was founded when British lead vocalist Count Steve, a.k.a. Steve Duncan, and Scottish saxophone player Jockstrap, a.k.a. Tom Perry, met in Vancouver, British Columbia in the late 70s, just as the sounds of two-tone ska were making their way across Canada. Sensing a musical opportunity and recognizing that Canada had no ska scene to speak of, Count Steve traveled back home to England in 1979 with a mission to recruit the best drummer, bass player, and guitarist he could find. Upon arrival in London, Count Steve placed an ad in the NME and was swamped with calls from interested musicians. Auditions at a small rehearsal space in East London resulted in guitarist Dave Legs Neal and bassist Tom Robertson. The final piece of the puzzle was solved when a young skinhead drummer named John Jacobs arrived to audition. 
with no tour, work permits, visas, or accommodation in hand, Count Steve somehow persuaded his new bandmates to travel back to Canada with him. Before leaving London, the band spent several weeks writing songs and rehearsing before arriving in Vancouver in early November of 1980. Legs Neal, who was interviewed by Vancouver radio station CITR in 2004, picks up the band's origin story. Well, for me, yeah, basically the way the band, the way the band formed is that there was a guy called Count Steve who was an expert who was living in Vancouver. He came over to London where we formed uh, the villains. That's what we, that's where we formed. Uh, in, we only played uh, probably about 10 gigs in England. Gigs were quite hard to come by uh, at that time uh, for us. So we just played local pubs until uh, Steve, you know, Steve had the brain child of saying, hey, people will love us in Canada. We've got to try it. We have to. So that's what we did. Though they had no contacts, Count Steve was able to persuade a popular club to book them. They made an impression during those early gigs, and as word of mouth began to grow, they built a passionate following. After performing in Vancouver for a short time, Neil and his bandmates were struck by how quickly Canadian audiences had warmed to them and their style of music. Uh, on the second day here, we went down to Gary Taylor's, which was a rock room. They had a band cancel. They booked us for three days immediately. From that, suddenly word got around that there was this new English ska band and there hadn't been an English ska band in Canada at that time. The specials played here once in 81. But by the, when we were there in 80, there'd never been this thing. And yet in the charts in Britain at that time, basically in the top 10, there were six ska bands, right? So people in the know knew of ska was happening big in England, but no one had seen a British ska band. And here was us, the little villains, We'd come in and people said, we want to see this English ska band. They may be fun, right? And it turns out we were, right? So that's what, that's, that's what happened. And then after that gig, we were lucky in that, again, we, opposite that was a, a venue called The Cave where James Brown used to play and people like that. And again, the following week, we went and met the manager of The Cave and he basically said, sure, come on in. You know, we, you can do three days. Basically, what we loved, it, what I loved about Canada, you know, like being an immigrant, never been here before, is that we play music and we play it at our full intensity, which I've always loved to do. But the crowds would just pick up on it and they'd want to dance. They want to get into it. You know, they were, for a musician, you know, Canadians are, you know, to me, I thought I was in heaven. I really did. I thought, wow, these guys want to listen to me. They want to dance and they really want to have fun. So it was like landing in a, a wonderful, uh, mythical place where people liked you, right? After arriving back in Vancouver in February 1981, after a short tour to Toronto, the band found themselves in the news. What had happened to suddenly generate intense Canadian media interest in an unknown British ska band? We were playing Gary Taylor's. We're on our second set. It was after midnight on a Thursday night. And suddenly, um, along the back wall, there were basically uh, 12 cops, city police. And then in front of them walked uh, five guys in suits and long raincoats. And we're playing, and the place is packed with skinhead punks, college students, right? That's it. That was our crowd at the time. 
And we're looking at these people on the back wall thinking, what the hell? Why are, why are they there? And then basically the plainclothes guys, as we found out they were afterwards, and the cops all rushed the stage and they clamped handcuffs on the band and arrested us off stage mid-set. That's what happened. Then they took us outside and they put us into the paddy wagon. And then from the paddy wagon, they took us to the city jail for the first night. Then the next night, because the city jail was full with 50 drunks, that's where we spent the night, we were then transferred to the RLCMP jail where we spent the next night uh, with uh, 30 drunks and criminals. And then the next night, we basically, us and 50 others, all got transported to a Keller penitentiary where we stayed there until we were released on bail two weeks later. There are famous pictures from several newspapers of the band stepping into a police paddy wagon dressed in full ska punk gear, tipping their pork pie hats to photographers as they were taken away. Rumor has it that a local booking agency had snitched on the band to authorities that they didn't have proper work visas. It turns out it was true. They were in Canada illegally, having blagged their way through customs and immigration in Vancouver. The story gets better. At the time of their arrest, there was a municipal strike going on in Vancouver, so the normal immigration detention center where they would have been taken for processing and deportation was closed. Instead, the band was taken to the local Vancouver City Jail and then later transferred to a Canadian penitentiary. Neil remembered what it was like to be held in prison for two weeks for playing ska music. You, you get to Okella, you're totally stripped, right? Uh, you're totally hosed down with the skies, with the, the screws have all got guns, you're told what to do, you have to do it. Uh, full inspection of your body parts for any miscellaneous crap. Uh, you, you then stand there dripping wet for two hours while they get your clothes together. Uh, then basically your issue clothes, you go upstairs, you have cold food, and you're all put into individual cells. Basically then uh, the day would begin with in the shower in the morning and you go in the shower and uh, we were lucky enough on our particular uh, cell row to have um, a transsexual candy. So then basically you begin the day by watching uh, the other thuggish uh, prisoners abusing uh, this beautiful transsexual woman and you couldn't do anything about it but as I say it was entertaining and she basically preferred to stay with the men and be abused rather than to go in with the women where they would scratch her to bit. So that's why she was in the men's prison. So that was how we woke up. Uh, for them, we just had cold eggs, cold bacon for breakfast, um, then exercise, then back in your room, locked up again until lunch. The band's reputation and story preceded them to prison, and word on the inside was that the villains were famous musicians. As such, they were received and treated like rock stars, even by the prison warden. Other good things that happened is the warden's daughter had been at Gary Taylor's the nights we were arrested. So on the fourth night in prison, we basically uh, were invited up to the warden's office where he gave us a full turkey dinner and his daughter and two of her friends were there to meet the band. So that here I am in prison, right? So it's pretty amazing stuff. The band members were finally bailed out and then appeared in court for their hearing before a judge. Luckily for them, the presiding judge was a ska and reggae-loving Jamaican immigrant to Canada. 
Um, to get out of jail in the two weeks, we basically all had to pay $10,000 Canadian. So we found a manager by that point, so he asked all his friends to help raise the monies to get us out. So we got out of jail. Then we had to wait another week until the court case. We went into the court, and my judge uh, was a, a wonderful fellow called John, who was an ex-Jamaican. He's a black guy. This guy knew the history of reggae. He knew the history of Scar. And he basically asked the prosecuting, prosecuting officer, who's the guy who arrested me and handcuffed me off stage, why he'd put me in prison and to two jails for over two weeks for singing Scar. And the prosecutor said, well, judge, uh, this guy is obviously uh, a skinhead. He's obviously racist. He's obviously violent. That's what I did. And the judge said, well, how do you know that for a fact? And the prosecuting officer could not answer. It was silent. So then the judge asked me, why did you come to Canada? So I said, hey, to play Scar. That's what I love. And he said, are you a violent man? I said, no, I hate violence. He said, are you a racist? I said, you've got to be joking. Uh, he said, have you any criminal record? I said, absolutely not. So he just then took the prosecutor aside and said, you're going to see me afterwards in my chambers uh, it is a crime for you to waste uh, Canadian government money locking up a guy for singing ska music and reggae music. This case is a load of bullshit. So they came back to me and he just said, look, uh, you've got 24 hours to get out of the country. If you leave within 24 hours, I will allow you back. And here's my card. If you need any help coming back into the country, contact me because I love ska music. And that's the truth. At this point, a Canadian management team recognizing the valuable publicity the band had generated, stepped in, and the proper paperwork and performance contracts for a Canadian tour were filed with the authorities. After three months in the UK, the band was allowed to return legally to Canada. Once back in the country, the band's first performance was a free show for the inmates and the guards in the prison where they had been held, resulting in another wave of national media attention. The Canadian press loved to give the band nicknames like Ska Na Na, the Blues Brothers of Ska, and Pied Pipers of Ska. However, the excitement and buzz about the band's live performances was not just a result of all the media attention. It was also largely because they were a truly great live band. The band's experience in prison provided creative motivation, and they ended up writing a number of songs, including their most popular song, Life of Crime. When we were in the prison, we just, but that's when it was decided that uh, we were going to release, release, release a song called Life of Crime. The cool part about that was we were talking to a lot of, you know, these were real criminals. These are guys who kill people, who rape people, and we're just listening. I'm, I'm one of those guys that likes to listen to people's stories, and these guys were telling me about their lives. So there was at that point, being arrested was the inspiration for Life of Crime. Uh, at that point, we wrote songs. That, that, that song, National Bank, um, We're Gonna Rob the National Bank, I wrote that after talking to someone in prison. The Life of Crime song was basically written about uh, not someone in prison, but just one of our friends who had been in and out of prison his whole life, and that's how he was going to be. Uh, after the prison thing, we wrote another song that's not on that particular thing called Doing Time. We, you know, we, we, I, we, did, we wrote this whole, probably about 12 songs on a Life of Crime theme. That's what we did. Here's their overlooked gem. Life of Crime, which definitely makes my top 10 list 
of Two-Tone Era Ska. Their arrest and time in prison was a PR dream come true. And once they were back in Canada after three months in the UK, the villains used their notoriety and sense of humor to counter any negative skinhead labels by headlining anti-KKK rallies and performing free concerts for sick kids in hospitals across the country. Because the band were in Canada on work visas, they spent the next five years touring the country nonstop, which undoubtedly helped to popularize ska across Canada. Um, we were on work permits every six months. So what that meant is every six months we had to do at least two tours of Canada. So in six years, uh, uh, we did probably 24 tours of Canada coast to coast. But with the villains, we were just... Um, we were non-stop touring for six years. You know, we played uh, 1,900 gigs in Canada, which is a lot of gigs for any one band. And it was only because we had to. You know, we, we were often we'd get exhausted on tour and we'd, you just want a week off. But if, if we stopped touring, we would have been asked to leave Canada, so we couldn't. And the funny thing was that the, uh, as, soon as, um, as soon as we became legal in 1986, we stopped touring because we were exhausted. The band experienced personnel changes over time and later morphed into a mainstream rock band 
and by the time they released a nationally distributed album on Attic Records in 1984 called Go Crazy, they were playing very few ska songs live. It was a calculated effort to cross over into the pop radio market, and not the first time a ska band failed to make that difficult transition. But their single, Grow Crazy, did generate some airplay. The Villains quit touring in 1986 as management and band members moved on to pursue other opportunities. Neil later went on to found Ska Boom, who further popularized Ska across Canada, and their video for the song Love and Affection received regular airplay on Much Music, the Canadian equivalent of MTV. I hope you've enjoyed learning more about the villains and the birth of Canadian ska. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to Ska Boom on whatever podcast platform you use. And please keep an eye out for my book, Ska Boom, that will be published later this year. Take care. This is where the DJ talks. Don't say anything. Okay.